0: Hello and welcome to the New Zealand Initiatives Podcast. I'm Oliver Hartwick here today. I'm joined by our historian in residence, Dr. Matthew Birchall. Hi, Matthew. Hi, Oliver. We are just days from the election, and so we thought we should reflect not just on the election, but really on the last three years, the lessons learned from the only outright majority New Zealand ever had under MMP. And we just want to reflect also on the election campaign. You have just published a column in the New Zealand Herald about amusing ourselves to death during the election campaign. That's a reference to Neil Postman. And I had a couple of pieces in the Australian media just trying to explain what's happening here to an Australian audience who might not actually follow it as much. So where do we start? Maybe, since you are the historian here, how will future historians look at this period from 2020 to 2023?
1: I think everything comes back to covid It's a huge disruption in terms of how we conduct our our politics, our lives, and our economy, and I don't think that can be overstated. So a lot of the, I think, triviality and and some of the anger even is a bit of an overhang uh, from that uh, really serious crisis. I mean, I don't think it's unexpected that you're going to have a lot of disenchanted people when they've been asked to to stay at home for, for long periods of time, so there's that kind of build-up of stress. And I think we see this historically when you do have a crisis. The emotions really only come to the surface a little bit after.
0: Well, it was a strange kind of crisis initially, because Mm -hmm. it was a crisis which also meant that, I think in opinion polls at the time, 80% of New Zealanders said we're going in the right direction. So you've got a crisis, and yet people say, yep, that's fine, and we're fine, and we're doing great." It was, of course, a crisis where the rest of the world was in crisis and we had hermetically sealed ourselves off from that and lived a normal life. And that's why I think we got this only majority ever produced under MMP
1: back then. I agree. It was a crisis of two parts, right? So you have the initial response that... That seems to look very good, right, the early lockdown. It and made
0: a lot of people feel really good about themselves.
1: Exactly, and I was living overseas at the time, and I was in the UK and having to deal with a pretty bumbling government there, and I, I look back at New Zealand and I think, well, maybe it is the promised land, and I'd like to to go back. But very quickly, you know, that initial success, I, th- I think actually it, you know, in the sort of Looking back uh, at this period of government as a whole, it it was a bit of a smokescreen because a lot of the sort of policy problems that the government had already begun to encounter by the time you get the crisis were masked by that seemingly very successful response Mm -hmm. to COVID.
0: I do remember a column I wrote in, I believe, May or June 2020, warning that, okay, people might think we have now solved this crisis and Mm -hmm. we have all united behind a common goal and the state has used all its powers and therefore the government might be tempted to then do the same for other Quite crises. Quiet,
1: a classic tale of hubris. That's what uh, I was getting this. at.
0: And so um, I was drawing actually a historical parallel in that piece with post-war Britain, having won the war with a national collective effort and then trying to build the new Jerusalem Mm-hmm. After forty-five, so winning the war and now winning the peace, that was a slogan in Britain.
1: Mm-hmm. And
0: of course, we know how that ended in seventy-nine: um, Complete collapse, really, of post-war Britain and Margaret Thatcher taking over to clean up the mess. And I argued in this 2020 piece, well, actually, this is where we might end up with COVID. So we are now putting all our efforts towards fighting this pandemic and actually preserving New Zealand as it is and keeping the virus out. And we will be so... Hunch, drunk, really, on all mm-hmm. of this, that we will think, well, okay, we can now do this for climate yeah. change and for whatever, Kiwi built.
1: Polytech reform. Polytechs and free yeah.
0: waters. So we can really do this.
1: It's a sort of team of five million mentality. Correct. You know, people bought into that. And I think, you know, during a crisis, at least the initial stages of the crisis, that was a good thing. And um, that, was, that was
0: the warning I, I made in 2020. Yeah. I think it's
1: played out that way, didn't it? I, I agree. The only quibble I'd have is, I think, it was quite a probably quite a generous comparison um, to draw between the Attlee government <laughs> and the Sixth Labour government. Well, uh, well, even the Attlee government
0: didn't actually really succeed.
1: Well, I guess it's a, a matter of relativities, right? You know, they were able to at least deliver on, on some of their core projects. I think the problem uh, with this current government has been you know, the big rhetoric in all policy domains, but that that inability to, to actually execute. The problem with the, the Attlee government in that sort of post-war period was, you know, the results when they came out in the wash were, were not quite what we would advocate for.
0: Well, it took a lot longer, actually, for that British post-war consensus to collapse Mm -hmm. I mean, from 1945 to 1979, effectively, whereas the collapse here happened much more quickly. Yeah. So when you look at um, 2020 to 2022, we were starting from 80% approval, basically, and 80% saying we're going in the right direction. By the time Jacinda Ardern left office, this was actually the first time that her personal net approval rating had gone negative. And Around that time, two-thirds were now saying New Zealand was going in the wrong direction. So it was a massive turnaround over just a couple of years.
1: That's right, and it's, it's one of the more sort of uh, marked features of, of the COVID pandemic was just the acceleration of, of everything. You know, this is a second-term government. They look like they're coming towards the end of a third term. Mm. Uh, so everything was highly pressurised. Yeah, what would have taken sort of, yeah, nine years has, has kind of taken six
0: I must say, the last few years actually felt a lot longer. (laughs) And not just me personally. I mean, when I'm talking to colleagues from other organizations, so other business organizations, company leaders, they all say the same. They actually all feel a little bit burned out because Mm -hmm. it was such an intense period those last few years. So, okay, this is a second-term government now, but it feels like they've been there forever because the whole time was so intense.
1: Exactly. And there's this kind of disjunction between sitting at home and, you know, a lot of people saying, oh, we we finally have, <laughs> you know, the time to take stock and reflect on, on the big issues. But then there's quite an abrupt, okay, we now have to rebuild, we have to get back to life, we have to learn how to socialise with one another, hopefully come back in, into the office. And yeah, a, a very uh, marked uh, disjuncture.
0: Okay, then let's talk about the election campaign. Because Frankly, the election campaign started when Chris Hipkins became Prime Minister. Mm-hmm. So I think we've had a very, very long election campaign this year. By the way, one of the bizarre features of that, I thought, was that Jacinda Ardern resigned and on her resignation day announced the date of the election. Did,
1: did you also find that strange? I don't really have any particularly strong, strong views on there. The thing was actually,
0: this is the prerogative of the Prime Minister to set the election date. How can you resign as Prime Minister and then simultaneously say, and I, by the way, I bind my successor, whom the party hadn't even chosen at that stage, mm. to an election day on 14 October. I would have thought it would be much wiser, would have been much wiser, for Jacinda Ardern to resign and then leave and, it to her yeah, successor.
1: I, I think that just speaks to how uh, large uh, Ardern loomed for that Labour Party. And, and so, you know, she just occupied center stage for so long. You know, ultimately, that was sort of her undoing. Really large proportion of, of the New Zealand public, you know, really began to not like her a lot. But you had a sort of a diehard block that that loved her. And I think it was, yeah, quite hard for her to pull out.
0: Well, that's true. I mean, apart from not the transition from Moderne to Hipkins, perfectly prepared, mm-hmm. perfectly executed. And it initially also delivered the result that Labour probably wanted.
1: On a uh, yeah, on a purely political level, it was unbelievably well executed. It was beautiful, really. Yeah, you couldn't couldn't have orchestrated it better. And yeah, the sort of the planning that would have uh, gone into that would have been quite immense. I don't, I don't know, you know, the precise timings. I guess we'll, we'll find out, you know, later on. But yeah, very well orchestrated. I I think you know the problem was the the policy platform you know the policy bonfire it was okay except we,
0: voters don't really care much for policy anyway well
1: that's <laughs> that, that's true and and we'll certainly get to that but yeah it was the initial reaction was manage the transition well yep detoxify the party uh, disassociate would be a better way to put it, you know, from policies that were increasingly becoming unappetizing to a large proportion of Kiwis. So, and it did you know, work. Yeah. So, so,
0: despite having been a senior cabinet minister for five years in practically every single portfolio, <laughs> Chris <laughs> Epkins was suddenly the fresh face.
1: Yeah, new government, new uh, government, new style.
0: And he would have probably won an election early on had he called a snap election for April or May. There was a time when there was a majority for a Labor Greens
1: government. Mm. Very hard thing to do, though. Uh, you're propelled into, you know, the ninth floor, new prime minister, and you know you'd have to have a lot of confidence to, to call that that snap election. I mean, it probably would have been the right thing, but um, you know, hindsight's a wonderful thing. There.
0: Well, he could have argued that actually he would like to seek a personal mandate for himself. I mean, that would have been relatively easy to argue.
1: Yeah, a complete reset. I think you're right.
0: Hmm. Anyway, he didn't do that. And afterwards, it didn't go so well for him. Not least because his cabinet actually let him down. I mean, the Mecha um resignation didn't help. And then we had Stuart Nash. We had Kerry Allen. We had Michael Wood and mm-hmm. his shares. So none of these ministerial resignations and defections were really Chris Ipkins fault. But of course... I mean, it's not as he's getting blamed, but it just has a cumulative effect in people's minds, I think. They, they will just see an individual resignation say, okay, well, that's what happens in government. But once
1: you get to three or four ministers leaving... Yeah, it builds up its own momentum. And we've seen this with other parties. Yeah. It, once you get a few, it, it starts to reflect badly on on the culture of the party and it raises, you know, larger questions, whether they're, they're sort of merited or not about, about leadership. And... All of
0: that created a narrative of a government that's on the way out. And then of course on the other side of the political spectrum we had an Act Party that was going from strength to strength. Yeah. National did okay in the kind of mid thirties. Yeah, they were sort, sort of doing what they rising. needed to do. And that was roughly the situation we had at the beginning of the campaign. Yeah. Depending on when you think the campaign really began. But say this was roughly where we were in June, July.
1: Yeah, that that that's right. And I I think the Kerry Ellen car crash where yeah, you did sort of think, Okay, this government has has really veered off off track. It was a
0: car crash quite literally, but also metaphorically. Mm Mm-hmm.
1: Well, yeah, it was emblematic of of where this government had gotten to. It felt tired. You know, the story quickly became about the personalities within the party. It was dysfunctional. And they were talking about themselves, and they weren't talking about bread and butter as uh, Chris Hipkins had wanted them to. Right, so if we're going back to June, July...
0: Everybody would have expected this is a government that's really just waiting to be kicked out Mm -hmm. and the election is the opposition's to lose because you're running against the most unpopular government in living memory and it should be an easy cruise to victory for Christopher Luxon. Mm -hmm. It doesn't look like that (laughs) anymore. No. So actually the last opinion polls were reasonably tight. Actually we had a couple of polls this week showing that the kind of left block, once you combine Labour, Greens, Tipati, Māori is now narrowly ahead of the right block of national net. Not quite sure where to count New Zealand first in all of this, but it's a remarkable turnaround.
1: Yeah, I think uh, political scientists call this uh, stuffing up. (laughs) (laughs) That's the the technical term. You know, where to begin with that kind of, you know, ebbing away of of support. You know, the the right block, you know, really should be well ahead, given, you know, right track, wrong track. It, it It was theirs to lose and... You know, there are a number of, of things that I think have gone wrong.
0: Before we get to them, let's talk about the campaign in general, because you had a piece, actually, you had two pieces now mm-hmm. in the Herald. You had one this week where you're talking more generally about cultural aspects behind election campaigns. You had another one actually last week where you looked at previous um, debates, yep. Longhi and Muldoon, and compared this actually to the well quote-unquote debates we have these days. They are very different formats, and they're very different cultural circumstances. Could you just give us an idea, actually, from your historical perspective, what's changed?
1: Yeah, that's that's right, and it's it's been quite grim watching, comparing, you know, the '84 debate in particular with what we're getting offered up up today. You know, the '84 debate for for listeners who are not an entirely familiar with was Muldoon Longy and it was an old. Muldoon kind of last gasps of power but he was you know he was clinging on very intelligent man command of detail and you had a, a young David Longy, trained lawyer very witty again across across the detail and just uh, the thing that really struck me was their ability to move from big picture thinking about where they want to take New Zealand to the more sort of granular policy level. And and I, I don't see that today. You know, now it's just very much, we'll stick to the talking points and no matter the question, you know, that is asked, we'll stick to them. Yeah, that's you, you don't really get a a proper conversation. Yeah, yeah. no,
0: that, that's quite obvious. I was a guest on TV um, TVNZ's Breakfast the morning after the first debate and they asked me... Uh, I made of it and I said well, not actually, much well n- yeah not so much that actually I think that was the other commentator <laughs> on the same program saying that <laughs> okay. It was, Shemobile was with me yeah. now um, what I said was actually I found it totally unsurprising because I had mm-hmm. heard all of the talking points yeah. before both Luxon and Hipkins they basically sang from their hymn sheets mm-hmm. and they had all their pre-prepared statements and talking points and if you had ever listened to any of their speeches before and I've listened to loads of them for both yeah Luxon and Hipkins, I knew all the things they were going to say.
1: Yeah, the exact words. The exact well. words. Yeah.
0: Uh, and that made it such a surreal experience, just watching this so-called debate, when basically it was just an invitation to just rehearse mm-hmm. your talking points. I mean, you again. could
1: sort of get ChatGPT to have, uh, you know, formulated this. <laughs> that's exactly what I thought. If
0: if you had asked ChatGPT based on all their previous statements and speeches, what would they say on any given question? That's exactly
1: what yeah, they would sort of have a hologram of Hopkins and a hologram of, of Luxon and get ChatGPT to <laughs> dole out the talking points. By the way, the, the
0: second debate with um, Pettigrew. I thought actually worked a bit better. Yep. Because Pettigauer didn't let that happen. Mm. He always injected new questions, kind of
1: left field questions, and made them think on the spot. Yeah. I really liked that. I'd agree. There was more energy. I noted that in my my Herald column. And there was that sense that he was actually listening to what the Politicos were saying and then making them, you know, ask a follow up question. But the
0: other thing that still didn't work, even in the Pettigauer debate, basically every answer was a maximum 10 seconds, right? Mm. And when you go back to those previous debates with Muldoon and Longy, I mean, they
1: had minutes sometimes. Yeah, so that's right. So in the 84 debate, on each topic, they had an opening one minute. And then that was followed by 10 minutes of discussion. Now, you know, I'd be really intrigued to see if we, you know, put Luxon and Hipkins together and, and gave them that, you know, Get your talking points out of the way in that that minute. And then what are you going to say for for another 10 minutes? (laughs)
0: Mm. Okay, so the media obviously Mm. plays a role in how a campaign unfolds these days. And it's very different from how we played this, well, perhaps even 10 or 20 years ago. Mm -hmm. And certainly 40 years ago. But there were other things that I think didn't make this campaign all too appealing. I mean, first of all, there was not much difference really between Mm -hmm. at least the two big parties... And I think it was deliberate because the National Party certainly didn't want to give Labour material to attack it. For. Mm-hmm. So when you look at the fiscal plans, for example, the differences were relatively microscopic. So the big level government spending doesn't actually change much under National's plan.
1: That's right. I, I'm unsurprised by this. I mean, part of the dissatisfaction with the Sixth Labour government has been, you know, we talk about all these big big ideas and, and big visions and, and big plans and, you know, the reality is a lot of Kiwis are feeling pretty dissatisfied and we've also gone through, you know, to hook back to what we are talking about at the start, you know, this um, this massive global pandemic and, and so people just want to talk turkey, they want to get down to, to brass tacks and I think that's been a deliberate strategy for Hipkins, you know, of that reset and then for Luxon it's, yeah, the, the whole national campaign has been the, the Ming Vars strategy, you know, yeah. you're, you're clearing the house out and you'll do anything to, to preserve the, the Ming Vars but, you know, that's that's opened the space for the minor parties to, yeah, get out some, some ideas that are a little bit more edgy, potentially a little bit more interesting and that's happened both on, on the left and the right
0: I mean, to be fair, some of the parties actually produced policy ideas and Mm -hmm. policy documents and they contained some interesting ideas, Mm -hmm. except these are not the ideas we're talking about. So the media focused on all the kind of flashy stuff, the in-your-face stuff, the ban of mobile phones in schools. So relatively simple ideas that people kind of relate to rather than the big policy Yeah,
1: conception. it's the sort of political sideshow. We want to know who the, the real Christopher Luxon is. Yes, And so you just end up with these really contrived, you know, I watched this series on RNZ where all the leaders got to cook with Charlotte Cook and I think, you know, Do I really need to know, you know, uh, how good Christopher Luxon is at making an omelette? Probably not. It wouldn't tell me much. (laughs) (laughs) It
0: would be far more interesting, actually, to see him unscramble one. (laughs) (laughs) Well, anyway, they also uh, contribute themselves, of course, to this trend. I mean, TikTok played a massive role, apparently, in this campaign. I can't tell. I don't have TikTok I don't want to sign up to that anyway, but I'm surprised at that, Oliver. You're surprised. Well, I'm I'm not signing up to a Chinese (laughs) spy agency, but uh, I saw that on the Nation actually, where they gave us kind of the best of TikTok in this election
1: campaign. I saw Shane Jones singing somewhere. Yeah, the uh, the latest one that I've heard this morning, and I'm yeah, a bit gutted because I couldn't put it into my Herald piece that came out this morning was apparently uh, Paddy Gower is asking for a jelly wrestling match with yeah, Winston Peters. Yeah,
0: yeah. <laughs> well, the other thing that you probably didn't have space to put into your column was the stupid question to Christopher Luxon whether he believes in dinosaurs. Uh, yeah. I mean, it w- apparently was just a bit of a satirical stunt, but then again it leads people to question well is this really such a christian fundamentalist that he would dispute that dinosaurs once roamed the earth
1: yeah I, I how low
0: they, can this campaign sink
1: you <sighs> know a bit of fun a bit of banter a bit of satire is is no bad thing i mean at the initiative <laughs> Uh, every week we have our number three insights pieces as a piece of satire, but it's the balance between serious discussion and you know this this more trivial stuff. It was not so much a satire. I thought it was
0: more <laughs> like an innuendo. This is a Neanderthal who doesn't believe in any of this. Yeah, I mean, I think
1: it was just a pretty stupid qu- yeah. <laughs> question.
0: So okay, so we have. Sideshows, we have no serious discussions of policy anymore. The media don't help. We also, of course, discuss coalitions as if it's the main game in town. Mm-hmm. I mean, okay, coalitions are really important, especially when you're operating under MMP, where hardly ever we have a situation like the one we just had now, mm-hmm. with an absolute majority for a single-party government. So okay, you have to talk coalition options, but actually, the way we did this in this election campaign was obsessive. Mm-hmm. And actually, to be fair, I think Christopher Luxon didn't help himself. Well,
1: there. yeah, that's quite right. Because he lifted it to that prominence. If you mismanage the coalition discussions, it then becomes a talking point, um, and they've sort of gotten themselves into to quite a big hole, but yeah, it's it's become the, the main event and the more serious policy focused discussion has not been at the forefront and, and you know, that's a real shame and I, I think it it reflects poorly on our political class because you get the impression that the major parties are just making this stuff up on the hoof, right?
0: Yeah. I also found it strange, actually, the lack of coherence in the communication strategy around potential coalitions. Mm-hmm. I mean, it was one thing for Luxon to say, well, um, we're not talking about this, because Winston is not even in parliament, and um, I'm dealing with it when it comes to it, but I'm actually not even want to talking about it. Right? Yeah. Uh, so it was a hypothetical. Was it was totally hypothetical. It, yeah. So that was the position until two weeks before the election, but then suddenly he releases a video and says well but if it means I have to call him I will and then they spend the next two weeks telling us why they don't want to call him why this would be a disaster and why they prefer just a coalition with ACT and then even to the point where Chris Bishop starts talking about maybe once the coalition negotiations have failed we'll call a second election election, I think the only effect all of this had was to give plenty of oxygen to New Zealand First and Winston Peters, who probably couldn't believe his luck.
1: Oh, it's uh, abundantly clear that, that that's the case. You know, huge miscalculation early on and uh, not ruling New Zealand First out. I think then the strategy was we'll just we'll not talk about it. But as the polls started to show that tightening, you know, panic starts to to sneak in and. Yeah, you've had this bizarre sequence of events where, as you say, it's okay, uh, we don't want to, to work with him, he's you know horrendous, it's, uh, it'd be chaos, but, but but we will if we have to. What
0: all of this did was, of course, contribute to the impression that this is an election actually fought on everything else but policy. Mm-hmm. So now we're just talking about personalities and coalitions, and previously we talked about sideshows and dinosaurs and omelettes, actually the loser in all of this is New Zealand because we are not talking about the stuff that should actually propel the country forward, solve our problems in education, and health, and crime, and law and order. Productivity. We haven't really talked much about productivity at all in this election.
1: Not, a, not at all really. You know, my own area of infrastructure you know, was very topical six months ago. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's not hard to see why. You look at the state of our roads and so on and so forth, but You know, very quickly it just kind of descended into this, you know, one week Labour would announce a a new bridge or, you know, an ambitious new road transport policy and the next week National would follow suit. Um, But sort of similarly pie-in-the-sky stuff, you know, not backed by proper costings, the funding models were were all out, so it, it wasn't serious. So it wasn't
0: really the election campaign that we hoped for.
1: No, and it wasn't the election campaign that we sorely needed.
0: And I think it's not just us. No matter who you talk to these days, they are all over it. They all just want this to be over and done and dusted, and really they don't want to talk about it anymore. They just basically cast their vote, and, and that's it, and then mm-hmm. let's move on. That's my impression, at least. I've never not met anyone, really, who said, oh, this was a really inspirational campaign. Let's have more of it. No. <laughs> okay. But actually, just as you think, okay, we leave all of this behind and we move on, and then we can actually start governing the country again, not so soon, because then we get to the quirks of MP. So can I tell you my, my worry? Absolutely. Okay, my worry is on Saturday, it will take us an, an ordinate amount of time to even get an idea who might have won. Mm-hmm. I actually had a piece in newsroom where I just compared this with Germany where after a minute you basically know that. Yeah, it's
1: 6.01. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
0: So basically what, what happens is in Germany, polls close at 6 p.m. At 6 p.m. on the dot, the two public broadcasters release their prognoses. They're based on exit polls. They're highly accurate. They're very scientific. <laughs> And then the election night is effectively over unless you have a party struggling to make 5% and the whole result hinges on that. But in normal circumstances at 6 or 1 p.m. everybody knows what the outcome is. And then you get final confirmation at midnight because at midnight the official result is released and there is n- none of this nonsense of special votes coming in after 10 days and then the result is declared a couple of weeks later. What I think will happen here, again, is roughly a replay of 2017. Mm -hmm. They will have a relatively tight election result. And then Winston Peters will say, actually, before we even get to the table to negotiate, let's just wait until the votes come in, and then I'll tell you. Well,
1: he'll go fishing first, and then... Well, that's what he did last time.
0: (laughs) So, um, it will probably take until the 3rd of November, until we even have the final result.
1: Yeah, so I, I have two points or two questions yes. for you, Oliver. So one is, what are the barriers for New Zealand to implementing that, what seems a much more sensible approach to getting an election result? Yeah, it's not earlier? It's not often that
0: you can actually learn something sensible from Germany, <laughs> but here we are.
1: Yeah. Actually... Very simple changes.
0: Yeah. So in Germany, you have to have the special votes in, the postal votes, by 6 p.m. on election day. Mm-hmm. They have to be received by that time, otherwise they won't be counted. Very simple rule. Well, in Germany, it also means and that they give people a little bit more time. So they, in some states, they get their election, election packs about six weeks before election day. It gives them plenty of time to post the stuff to make sure it's really received by 6 p.m. on election day election night. Yeah. In New Zealand, we give them an extra 10 days and then we'll declare the result an extra few days after that. Mm. So first change I would make is actually say, okay, you get a bit more time to cast your ballots in a postal way, but it has to be received on that day. Yeah. And otherwise, forget it. And that would ensure that on the day after the election, we would have the final result. And then people could actually start to get to work yeah, and get back, get the back to yeah.
1: and, and just on that, my follow-up question on timing, you mentioned to me earlier that Australia, they typically do their elections in May. Yes. Now, obviously, Australia, the weather's much nicer. Politicians like to do their elections in warm weather, so we push it back a little bit. But it does seem like we've landed at this problematic spot where we have our election in mm-hmm. October, and then it takes a long time to try and form a government But, you know, people are wanting to, you know, get to the beach and enjoy the Kiwi summer.
0: Yeah, I think the Australians have it better than us. They typically go to the polls in May, as you say, and they also have a different electoral system anyway, uh, STV, single transferable vote, but let's not get into that now. Anyway, it means the new Australian government is formed sometime probably late May, and then they have roughly half a year to go until the Christmas break. And that's great because you've got a new government and it takes some time to settle in and mm-hmm. actually make the first appointments and first decisions. And then probably after half a year, they are due for a break. So that's yeah. good. In New Zealand, we go to the polls in October. Then we start counting and counting and counting until we sometimes have a final result in November. And then the coalition negotiations start because we have MMP, so that takes a while. Now we also have, of course, a uh, by-election in Port Waikato because of the the ex-candidate, who sadly passed away during mm-hmm. the campaign. So that's on the 25th of November, so we might even have to wait for that. Who knows? And then the next government really only gets to work in the first weeks of December, but then breaks immediately for Christmas and a summer break. And we all know what happens during summer in New Zealand. Nothing really works anymore. Nobody is at work. Wellington is a ghost town. And all of that really only changes around by Waitangi Day. Mm. So That means between the election, 14th of October and Waitangi Day, early February, nothing much will be done. Mm. Maybe that's an advantage. I mean, Belgium (laughs) once had uh, 15 months without a government and apparently was the (laughs) best time in Belgium's (laughs) history. But it would be nice, especially with a change of government, to just get onto it and get business done. And that doesn't seem to happen here. So I would actually strongly encourage the next government to think about not just making the terms longer, but also strategically shifting the election day to earlier in the year. So that's one thing. Other thing, by the way, we should really deal with the remnants of first-past-the-post. So this whole circus of the Port Waikato by-election is only happening because once upon a time, under first-past-the-post, that would have made sense.
1: But it doesn't anymore. Yeah, that's right. And this comes across in your excellent and, I should say, (laughs) much-talked-about newsroom article. Uh, you, You make the point that New Zealand, its cultural inheritance is is first past the post, and that lingers into the present, even though we're operating under MMP. Can you chat about that a little bit more?
0: Yeah, I've always argued that, I mean, just as you can't take, well, you, you can take the German out of Germany, but you can't take Germany out of the German. New Zealand speaks mmp with an FPP accent, why? Yeah. <laughs> and it's very cute sometimes having <laughs> these accents, as you know. But uh, in, in New Zealand's case, it just doesn't make sense because we treat the whole election as if it still happened under first past the post. So on election night, for example, there is an en- enormous amount of attention devoted to individual seats, as if that mattered. What we should really pay attention to is the party vote, and ideally we would have exit polls, which are illegal in New Zealand, by the way, Mm. and then start talking about coalition options on the night, as they do in Germany, by the way. We have to just realise we are now operating under MMP. This was a system actually voted in once and then confirmed in another referendum. So, okay, we've chosen the system. It's not my favourite system, but at least that's what we have, so make it work.
1: That's right. Uh, If we're going to do MMP, we need to do it properly. And, you know, the other thing that I've always been struck by is... You know, uh, to use a sort of German comparison again, it's, you know, the idea of a a grand coalition, right? So a coalition between national and labour is just not sort of plausible within the New Zealand context. Yeah, I'm not not quite sure why. Yeah, but I think that's a hang-up again from a a very strong first-past-the-post history.
0: Might take a while until we get to that point. I wouldn't rule it out. I mean, the, the Germans weren't keen on grand coalitions either, but there are circumstances at times in Parliament where nothing else really works. Mm. So I- imagine, I mean, just yeah. speculation now, you really don't find any agreement between David Seymour and Winston Peters, and the whole thing falls <laughs> through. Uh, just as Chris Bishop speculated a week ago, yeah. would you then rather say, okay, we'll have a second election to clean up the mess, or to prevent that scenario would you reach out across the island, and say to Labour, actually, how about we get together?
1: Yeah, I, I don't buy it. I, I think the only foreseeable context in which New Zealand would get a grand coalition within the short term would be within the context of a crisis. So I think something like COVID or or wartime, really. I think you sort of underestimate the sort of tribal nature of. Oh, of don't, the two, no, no, I, I don't. <laughs> the two main parties. I've seen it. You know, from a uh, sort of purely objective position you know, their, their policy platform lines up. I mean, you mentioned earlier on their, their spending plans and, and so forth. It, it makes sense, uh, and it would probably make sense in, in the national interest, but I just don't think the political class is, is ready to entertain that idea, and I don't think culturally it's been bedded in. Yeah, there, there's an additional complication with MMP.
0: I think James Shaw mentioned that um, mm. a few days ago on uh, Hosking, actually. Yep. He said... When MMP was introduced, there was a massive education campaign. People were told how it works. You've got two votes and how these votes actually interact with each other. And it was actually understood relatively well at the time. But this was a one-off education campaign and people have forgotten that now. And now we are playing MMP, but many people aren't clear about it. And uh, there are a few people, of course, who know how this works, but a few and far in between. And then what happens is, of course, with MMP, you play electoral chess, 3D chess in some cases. So I can had conversations with people here in Wellington Central. They said they would vote for national or act with their party vote. Mm. But then they would support the um, Labour candidate, actually, to prevent the Greens candidate from taking the constituency. Mm. And similar kind of conversations in Ohio, um, and I even mentioned that in one of my columns, if you are a national voter and you really want to punish the Labour government, you would vote Labour in the constituency because mm. Gregor Connor is not on the list. And if you think the election result is such that Labour can't expect to have that many list MPs, well, then voting for someone like Gregor Connor makes sense because with that, you ensure that people like Crown Robertson and Doolittle, Aisha Verrill, and David Parker won't be returned to Parliament. So you can basically decapitate the Labour Party by going for. Not the national candidate, but the Labour candidate, mm. and this is just the way that MMP sometimes works. But many people don't actually play it that way.
1: That's right. I think your points there encapsulate two things. Firstly, the complexity of MMP. Um, you know, that's probably its most obvious drawback as a electoral system. But I think the, the deeper sort of cultural point is that erosion of of civics knowledge within New Zealand and. I know Eric has written about this, um, and you know my articles in the the Herald and and your pieces. Um, Great articles, by the uh, way. I should you. say that since you praised mine, <laughs> uh, ...in the Australian newspapers this week are, are both getting at that. And I think, you know, that's hovering in the background. And I think, you know, for us at the initiative and and other people who are engaged in the the policy process, it's really incumbent upon us to to insist on, on rigorous research to, you know, without sounding too pretentious, to try and, and elevate uh, the conversation, because these conversations really matter. There are more important things than uh, jelly fights between Patrick Gower and, and, and Winston Peters. I uh, couldn't agree more. Now,
0: <clears throat> we're getting to that point where there is a massive chance to end up with face. Predictions are always difficult, especially those regarding the future. So let's talk about potential outcomes. We are, well, about two days away from election day and what two or three weeks away from the final result.
1: (laughs) So what do you see coming? I see a change in government, national, uh, New Zealand First and Act, tighter than expected. And I think, you know, the devil will be in the detail in terms of, the coalition negotiations. I think you know, given national strategic missteps of late, they need to get their house in order because you know the one thing that, that Winston Peters is especially adept at is negotiating within an MMP environment. But that's my pick. It'll be closer than I think many thought, but you know I think when push comes to shove, they'll they'll find a way to to muddle through. Mm.
0: That would roughly be my pick too. I must say, this election reminds me of a German election in 2005. You, you may not remember this, and if you're not following German policy
1: uh, politics, I, I, I don't really blame you. I was avidly following German politics as a 14-year-old, Oliver. <laughs> of course, as you would. Uh,
0: well, actually, the scenario was not too dissimilar from what we're going through right now. It was a very unpopular social democratic government, so equivalent of Labour, led by Gerhard Schröder, in their Mm -hmm. second term. So they'd been in office for seven years, and actually he called an early election because he felt he needed a mandate and the government had run out of steam. And against him was Angela Merkel, still opposition leader, at some stage above 50% in the polls. But then Gerhard Schröder did a remarkable campaign, and the two parties ended up within about 7,000 votes of each other leading to a really famous scene on German TV on election night where Schröder, who seemed to be drunk, uh, basically just uh, told Merkel, you, you don't really seriously expect that my party under these circumstances would have anything to do with you. <laughs> well, a few weeks later, his party ended up in coalition as the junior partner because he was 7,000 votes behind Angela Merkel, and Merkel became chancellor, but she was bruised at the time because she ended up on, from memory, something like 36% when she had hoped for something closer to 50 mm. But the Social Democrats' campaign was so good that it took really 13 14% of her polling results. And she only narrowly became chancellor. Bruised, but still chancellor. And people speculated and said, well, actually, she's so damaged now. How long will she last? Well, the answer was she lasted 16 years. Mm. So I'm looking at what's happening here. And I agree, National Made strategic mistakes in the campaign, Mm -hmm. and it will be quite a bruising experience, I think, for national and could be very tight. Maybe we get to within 7,000 votes of Labour. I wouldn't rule this out. But that doesn't mean that this government wouldn't last then. So I think even from that kind of near-death experience in politics, you can still actually form a government and then govern for
1: a very long time if you come back from that. That's quite right. People have short memories in, in politics. And, you know, even looking at, um, you know, young Helen Clark, um, she had a very tenuous grip.
0: Yeah. And, and Merkel Party. in 2005, you would have thought, well, she's such a damaged figure, uh, she'll probably be gone soon. And then she became this towering figure in Germany and Europe. Mm. That would be my prediction, actually. I think election night's going to be really tight. I agree with you, we'll probably end up in a three-way coalition with New Zealand First involved. Um, Everything else, I think, um, history will show, and then we'll have to have historians like you to write it up for us.
1: Well, that's quite right. But in terms of trivia, we all know of uh, trivial things. Uh, The really important event is on the Sunday uh, when the All Blacks face Ireland in uh, what is a mouth-watering Rugby World Cup quarter-final
0: and another really interesting thing happening over the weekend which we haven't even talked about Mm. is The Voice in Australia so it will be an interesting weekend for the region let's put it this way I look forward to that and I'm sure we'll talk about it again on the podcast but for now thank you Matthew cheers Oliver and thank you for listening